everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. We have a lot to get into today, so I'll just jump right into the show notes. First, I wanted to promote Alan Kirshner's book, Antichrist Before the Day of the Lord, is now available in audiobook format. So if you want to learn about the pre-wrath position and you like uh, uh, Audible as a format to learn things, check out Antichrist Before the Day of the Lord on Audible. And while we're talking about Alan, let me also plug his podcast. So Dr. Alan Kirshner has a PhD in Greek. Um, he has focused his studies on the pre-wrath rapture. So his podcast, The Biblical Prophecy Program, is almost entirely about the pre-wrath rapture. He's been doing it for several years. It's just a treasure trove of information. So if you like this podcast, you're probably going to like that one as well. Biblical Prophecy program with Alan Kirshner. And again, check out his book on Audible, Antichrist Before the Day of the Lord. I also wanted to say that next week's podcast, which I'm excited about, I have an interesting topic for and I'm excited about doing the research. It might be a little bit late or maybe I'll skip a week altogether. I'm not sure yet. I need to see how long it's going to take me to get some questions ready. I have two interviews coming up in early December that I need to get the questions off to the people I'm interviewing this week in the next few days. So I don't know how uh, much time I'm going to have to do the research I need to do for the next podcast. So there might be a little bit of a delay there. So that should do it for show notes. Check out the websites, BibleProphecyTalk.com, PreWrathMovie.com, Twitter slash PreWrathRapture. Okay, so let's talk about the main thing in this podcast, and that's mostly going to be about a guy named Craig Blazing. We talked a little bit about him last week and in other podcasts, but Last week we were talking about Matthew 24 and basically the fallout that pre-tribulationalists have uh, in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse because of what they do with verse 31, which is uh, Jesus appearing in heaven, gathering the elect to the four winds of heaven, what seems to clearly be the rapture, but of course can't be the rapture to a pre-tribber because it would mean that imminence isn't true because there are lots of signs that precede that. And, but So they have to make it either the Armageddon or the sheep and goat judgment or the ingathering of Israel. Basically anything in the world except for the rapture. And as I pointed out in the last podcast, this is extremely problematic for them because the rest of Matthew 24 and 25 talks about in these various parables that you no one knows the day or the hour of Armageddon, when in fact everybody knows the day or the hour of Armageddon, you just count forward 1,260 days or, or, or seven years from the various signposts that were given to watch. This is another theme of the rest of the Olivet Discourse. They need to continue to watch. Again, I think that's an oxymoron in itself. They say that means eminence. I say it's an oxymoron to watch for something that has no signs. People are going to be eating and drinking. There's several parables talking about the suddenness of this event. But of course, eating and drinking in marriage and giving in marriage makes no sense if that comes at, if they're talking about Armageddon, when literally the bowls of wrath and the and the, the trumpet judgments and all that stuff are being poured out. People are being stung for five months by demons, scorpions, and yet they're eating and drinking and giving in marriage. And then of course, one taken and another left, that something that they have to try to say is not the rapture and all this other stuff. Basically, it's just problem after problem after problem with, by, by having made verse 31 not the rapture. 
And I want to emphasize how serious of an issue this is and how much I don't think I would have recognized how serious it was unless I read all the commentaries with this in mind, trying to figure out what each commentator is trying to do with this section and then finding out, oh my gosh, they're not really even trying. They're glossing over it. They're giving, you know, maybe a couple of examples, but not committing to anything or just saying straight up that this is a problem. Here's an interesting quote from John Walvard, i.e. Mr. Dallas Theological, uh, Mr pre-tribulational guy. He says, quote, in this passage, rather strangely, commentators who are quite similar in their points of view and prophecy have differed considerably in their exposition of this last portion of Matthew 24. Some special problems of interpretation must be taken into consideration in the study of this chapter. So in last week's episode, I started to talk about how it's only been in the last 10 or 20 years that scholars have started to propose fixes for this problem. And leading the way really are two guys, John Hart of Moody and then Craig Blazing of, I think he's at Southwestern, uh, I think right now, but he used to be of Dallas. So these are the guys kind of at the forefront. And so we talked last time about John Hart. And John Hart's main contribution is to basically fix this one problem of the last half of Matthew 24. I don't think it's a good argument, but it is there. Craig Blazing in the course of his overarching theory, one of the things he proposes to fix is this last half of Matthew 24 and 25, but he's got a much broader view trying to fix the wish list of pre-trib problems. I mean, he's going to use the theory that he comes up with to try to fix all the problems, but we'll look into those individually. But the main thesis of what he's trying to do and what he says his thesis is in the three views on the rapture book is that he needs to prove that the day of the Lord is coextensive with the 70th week of Daniel. In other words, he needs to prove that the wrath of God, what I and pretty much everybody would agree, that the day of the Lord is the wrath of God. So is all of the seven-year period the wrath of God? Because if it is, you could also prove that the church will not go through the wrath of God. Therefore, the church has to be raptured before the seven-year period begins. There's a reason he says this is the main thesis. It is so fundamental to pre-tribulationalism, and it is also odd, in my opinion, that you probably don't know many arguments for that most fundamental thing they need to prove. And the reason is, it's not a big selling point for pre-tribulationalism. They don't have any arguments, or at least in my opinion, good arguments for this. And that's the reason they're not shouting their arguments from the rooftops. And that's why Craig Blazing needs to come in at this late date and try to basically come up with a reason for pre-tribulationalism being true. This is especially important in light of pre-wrath, who has come on the scene and said, hey, the Bible actually tells you explicitly when the wrath of God begins, and it's at some unknown point after the midpoint, that is when the Bible like tells you that the day of the Lord starts. We'll get into the argumentation for that in the next podcast, but the short answer is that Joel 2 says that before the day of the Lord, that is before the day of the Lord, you will see this celestial disturbance sign. The sun as sackcloth, the moon as blood, the stars won't give their light. Uh, there's going to be a shaking and all the rest of the stuff that happens there. That sign happens before the day of the Lord. It is a herald to let people know that the day of the Lord is now going to happen at any moment. And what do you see in Revelation 6? Now, we see that sign mirrored in two places, uh, Matthew 24 and Revelation 6. 
in Revelation 6, when they see that sign, what do people do at the sixth seal? They, the wicked hide themselves in the rocks and say, who can withstand uh, the wrath of the Lamb? The wrath of God has come. So we have really good evidence, not just Joel saying that before the day of the Lord, you're going to see this, and the people in Revelation 6 saying, now the wrath of God has come. It should be understood completely from the Bible that the celestial disturbance signs is the herald of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has not started until after that, and that event in Matthew 24 is after the midpoint. At some unknown time after the midpoint, we see this sign. So the pre-rathers have a really good case of the day of the Lord, and that's just one argument, but uh, starts after the midpoint. So what is the pre-trib argument for the entire seven years being the wrath of God, even though we have the sun, moon, and star sign way later in the 70th week? Enter Craig Blazing, and I first want to say that Craig Blazing is clearly an intelligent guy, way smarter than I am or will ever be. And it's really difficult for me to read his material or listen to his lectures. I need to do it several times. And still, there's things that I'm not quite sure I understand. And I'm really thankful for this being written in a sort of a debate format so that I can hear the responses from the other scholars and be like, okay, I did understand that correctly because that was very, very difficult to to understand. So with Craig Blazing, you basically need to accept a new hermeneutic, a new way to interpret the Bible with this thing he calls the Danielic uh, time of the end pattern cycle thing. And he actually says that in his lectures. He kind of starts off by saying that pre-trib has lost a lot of proponents because of the way that they interpreted the Bible. He mentions that William Ladd and this post-tribulationalist came along and it kind of made people want to interpret the Bible with uh, a different way. And so in a way, that's what he's doing. He's saying that here's a new way to interpret the Bible. So what he's doing with this Danielic cycle is he points out that in Daniel, Daniel 2, Daniel 8, 7, uh, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, basically most of Daniel is uh, mentions the Antichrist and mentions various aspects of the, quote, time of the end. That's because Daniel was uniquely focused on the time of the end, of course. But what uh, Craig Blazing says is that basically because of Daniel 9, you can point out that that's a seven-year pattern. He says, okay, well, in Daniel 9, he's talking about a seven-year pattern. So basically any time in Daniel, it doesn't matter if he's talking about a seven-year pattern or if he's specifically, obviously talking about the, the three-year pattern. Uh, basically, it doesn't, doesn't matter. If anything about the end times is at, is at all mentioned in Daniel, you get to basically superimpose seven years on top of that. And there are problems with that, and that's okay, but it's not really my main beef with this. What he then wants to do is basically carry this over into the New Testament. And anytime anybody mentions Daniel or the Antichrist or basically any aspect of Daniel, what Craig Blazing's theory is, is what that writer in the New Testament is really trying to do is trying to now invoke this Danielic cycle, which the reader is supposed to interpret as seven years. So it doesn't matter if it's out of order or whatever. You mentioned Daniel, the reader is supposed to now import the Danielic cycle of seven years. And I don't even have a problem with that. I don't think it's true. I think it's a terrible way to interpret the Bible, but I don't even have a problem with that. What he's really trying to do now is that, that he's established the one thing, which is that you can import wholesale a seven-year period on any point in the New Testament that talks about the Antichrist. Now he gets to, if he can prove that there is wrath in Daniel, then he gets to say, okay, now there's wrath in anything that I get to import it in. 
and pre-tribbers know that you can't really prove that the wrath of God, the day of the Lord, is in Matthew 24 or any of the all of it discourse. It's just not there. And they know it. So he's not arguing, hey, look at this thing in Matthew 24. There's there's wrath there. This is clearly the day of the Lord. So instead, he's saying, if I can prove wrath in Daniel, will you accept it if I then get to import that and lay that on top of anywhere that mentions Daniel? And again, I don't even have a problem with that. I would even grant that. But the problem is, even then, even if you grant all this stuff to him and say, okay, sure, for the sake of argument, let's do it, he still can't prove the wrath in Daniel. And therefore, him importing it onto the top of Matthew 24 doesn't do any good. Matthew 24, Charles Cooper said something the other day, or I didn't say it, I was reading it, but he was talking about um, John Hart, who we talked about last week. And he was saying, you know, that uh, that for, for most of pre-tribulationalism, their view of Matthew 24 has always been that there is no rapture in Matthew 24. And, you know, people like John Walbert have always said, you know, there is no rapture. Nothing about Matthew 24 is even remotely about the rapture. No rapture in Matthew 24, where the pre-wrath position has essentially been the opposite. It's all rapture in Matthew 24. It's the events leading up to the rapture, and then all the day or the hour language and the one taken, one left, all the stuff after that is also, in a, in a sense, pointing to the, to the rapture. In other words, there's no wrath of God in Matthew 24. There's the herald that the wrath of God is about to start, that is, the sun, moon, and star signs, but basically Matthew 24, the events in it, conclude with the rapture, that is, the catching up in verse 31. It doesn't, what happens after that in the, it is picked up in Revelation 6, which with now the seven trumpets being released and then the seven bowls after that, the actual wrath of God is not in Matthew 24. And I would submit that it's also not in Daniel. In other words, there are entire books of the Bible that are focused on the day of the Lord, especially the minor prophets, but Daniel really isn't one of them. Daniel is focused on the Antichrist and his activity. Daniel is like astonished by the Antichrist. He's like, what is this guy doing? He talks about the things he does, the abominations, the persecutions of the elect, and you know, he's killing all these people and the wars that he does and all this stuff that is very Antichrist specific. But Daniel really doesn't get into any of this specific wrath of God, day of the Lord language. I mean, you know, a third of the green grass being burned up and, you know, people running for them lives and, and all the wicked getting their, their just desserts and all this stuff. That's not Daniel. Daniel is the Antichrist is coming, beware. Now, you can kind of infer that, like in the 70th week prophecy in Daniel 9, I mean, yeah, that's seven years, so the wrath of God had to happen somewhere in there. I mean, like Daniel 2, the kingdom of God is set up, so, I mean, the wrath of God must have occurred at some point. Daniel kind of fast-forwards through anything that's specific about the wrath of God. I mean, there, he mostly, it, when he gets into details, he's talking about the wars of the Antichrist, the people he persecutes, how he does it, the nature of his abomination, his, his, uh, his biography. That's Daniel's focus. And, and so Daniel tends to focus mostly on the events after the midpoint. And in fact, there's entire sections of Daniel that are not at all focused on the entire seven-year period. So as we're going to see in the responses to Craig Blazing, that's one fundamental flaw of this. But the point I'm trying to make here is that Craig Blazing, even if you granted this entire new hermeneutic to him, that it's okay to have somebody mention the Antichrist in the New Testament and and accept that the writer really meant for you to now know that Daniel's cycle is, is invoked, so I need to import seven years on top of that. Even if I granted that, he still has his work cut out for him in trying to prove that the wrath of God is in Daniel. 
so that he can then lay Daniel on top of Matthew 24 and say, now I've proven that the wrath of God is in Matthew 24, so now I've proven that pre-tribulationalism is true. So let's look at his arguments for the day of the Lord being in Daniel, the wrath of God being in Daniel, and it really centers around a word, and that is the word that sometimes can be translated as wrath. Uh, an appearance of it is a few times in Daniel, about three times. Here in Daniel 11.30, it says, For the ships of Kittim shall come against him, that is the Antichrist, uh, or, or Antiochus, depending on when it shifts over, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged. That word enraged is wrath, or what they're calling wrath, uh, and take action against the Holy Covenant. So this word, Za'am, I think it's what it is, the uh, the the number H2194 in your concordances, Za'am, a prim primitive root properly to foam at the mouth, that is to be enraged. Here, the Antichrist is the one being enraged. Uh, so clearly, it does not necessarily mean the wrath of God. It shows up again a few verses later in verse 36, which is a little bit more interesting. It says, And the king shall do as he wills against the Antichrist. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of God, he shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. So the indignation being accomplished and Craig Blazing is, is wanting us to say the indignation, which again can be wrath, that that indignation there is definitely talking about the wrath of God, not necessarily the anger of the Antichrist or the persecution that the Antichrist has been granted to, to do, that it must mean the wrath of God according to Blazing and that it somehow means seven years. Now, clearly in this particular passage, seven years is, is certainly not in view. This is definitely after the midpoint. Again, this is why it's important for Craig Blazing to have the precursor that anytime that anything gets mentioned that you need to also import seven years into it. That's the reason for this, because at the very least, this is talking about a three and a half year period. The last instance of this is a little more tricky in Daniel eight nineteen. This is where Gabriel is talking to Daniel and it says, he said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. The word indignation there is Za'am, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. So the question really is, is this latter end of the indignation, and I grant that that word can mean wrath, but is that what's being talked about here? Is that the day of the Lord wrath, the wrath of God? I mean, I understand why Craig Blazing would want it to be, but the other two instances of this word in Daniel are talking about not the wrath of God, but the wrath of the Antichrist on people. And then contextually, what does the Daniel show him when he says, I'm going to show you this indignation? And then what does he show him except for the very same thing that it has meant in the other places? Daniel spends the entirety of this vision or the angel spends the entirety of this vision telling him these awful things that the Antichrist is going to do. So it does seem very consistent. But let me read a few of the criticisms of this particular line of argumentation. In the interest of time, I won't go into too much detail about Holtberg's response to the Daniel time of the end cycle seven year thing. I'll mention briefly what he does say about it. He says, Daniel 9, 24 through 27 does not mention the time of the end or the period of wrath. The relationship of Daniel 8, 9 through 14, 11, 29 through 35 and 11, 36 through 12, 3 is clearly meant to correspond to the latter half of the 70th week, since it's that portion of the week that follows the establishment of the abomination of desolation in Daniel 9, 27. 
heaven. Thus, though both the time of the end and the period of wrath can possibly refer to the entire career of Antiochus slash the Antichrist, they more specifically refer to the terror of their final three and one half years. It is much too easy then to refer to the, quote, time of the end as a structured pattern in Daniel encompassing the entire 70th week. The pattern Daniel focuses on is the period of persecution and ultimate deliverance following the abomination of desolation. He then gets into the wrath arguments. He says, this leads to the second observation. The wrath that occurs at the time of the end is not the wrath of God against sinners, but the wrath of the Gentile kings against God and his people. Daniel's only use of the verb, za'am, to rage against, to be indignant against, to curse, is in 1130, where it describes Antiochus' hostility towards a covenant. This implies that the equivalent period of za'am, referred to in 819 and 1136, are periods of imperial opposition to God's people. Blazing's claims about the evidence in Daniel then don't hold up. The quote time of the end is not presented in Daniel as a period of divine wrath, nor can the quote time of the end easily be identified with the entirety of the 70th week. In fact, it much more readily focuses on the last half of the week. The arguments for there being day of the Lord language or the wrath of God in Daniel really go downhill from here, in my opinion. He makes a big deal in his lectures about how God can use Gentile kings to mete out his judgments. In other words, like in the Old Testament, God would take a Persian king or a Babylonian king and use him to judge Israel for some sins that they had committed. They had an Israel judgment coming to him for something, and he used the Babylonians to uh, mete out that judgment and then destroyed that Babylonian king. So God just used the Babylonians as a tool for his will. Fine, I agree with that. But it seems he's seeming to suggest that the Antichrist is uh, also, that's what ha- it's happening with the Antichrist. It really, in my mind, shows the bankruptcy of, of any lines of evidence to point to wrath in the book of Daniel. If you're having to resort to saying that the Antichrist might be like a, a function of God's wrath, the problem, of course, is contextually, at least the Babylonians were uh, destroying Israel for a some sin that they had coming to them, whereas in the case of the Antichrist Great Tribulation, he is destroying Christians, um, and that is not a picture of the day of the Lord. In fact, that is the exact opposite of what the day of the Lord will be. The day of the Lord will not be wicked people destroying Christians. It will be God destroying wicked people. Blazing has one more argument about there being the wrath of God in Daniel, but really what he's doing here is he's starting with Matthew 24. Remember, what we're trying to do here is Blazing is trying to establish that the wrath of God, day of the Lord language is in Daniel so that he can paste it on Matthew 24 so that he can say that everything from the birth pangs, you know, false Christ, wars, rumors of wars, all those birth pangs at the very beginning, what Jesus says, don't worry, the end is not yet. He needs that stuff to be the wrath of God. So if he can establish this thing he's trying to establish now, he can make those birth pangs be the wrath of God and then have the pre-tribulational case closed. But the problem is he needs to find some kind of uh, examples of those birth pangs in the book of Daniel. So we've got pestilence and famine that he can't find. We've got a lot of things he can't find. Uh, earthquakes. What he can find, however, is wars. And that's pretty lame if you think about it. Okay, wars you found in Daniel. Congratulations. And false Christs. Okay, so he's got two out of whatever it is, seven things that he can point to and say, look, these things, these birth pangs are also in Daniel. Yes, they're very general, etc. Let me read again what Alan Holtberg had to say about that. 
Quote, it is not clear that anything prior to the explicit Danielic allusions in verses 15 through 31 is intended to refer to a Danielic sequence at all. So he's saying, sure, Matthew uh, 24 verses 15 through 31 talk about Daniel. It's talking about the abomination of desolation. Daniel the prophet said it. Let the reader understand. Clearly, Jesus is referring to Daniel at that point, which is about the midpoint. But it's not clear that these birth pangs have anything to do with Craig Blazing's supposed Danielic sequence that we should do the seven-year thing. Uh, Blazing cites Davies and Allison in support, but the only two allusions to Daniel that they propose can be found in verses 4 through 14 are rumors of wars and persecution of saints, neither of which has much to commend it. Rumors of war supposedly alludes to the, quote, war of Daniel 9.26 and the, quote, rumors of Daniel 11.44, but, quote, war is hardly unique to Daniel, even war in Jerusalem. And Daniel 11.44 refers to the, quote, reports from the East that the Antichrist will respond to, not, quote, rumors of war that the disciples will hear about and respond to in fear. In another place, he makes a good point. He says, uh, thus, verses 4 through 14, the birth pangs, are marked not by sequential language, but by general parataxis, and more important, by the disavowal that these events are events of the end, 24, 6, 14. The point of equating the events of verses 4 through 14 with the beginning of labor pains, verse 8, is not to make them a part of the end, but to distinguish them from it. In other words, Jesus says, look, these are the, the labor pangs, but the end is not yet. Think of how different that is if we're talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is unambiguously the end. If the labor pangs were, in fact, you were in the middle of the day of the Lord and the labor pangs, why is Jesus saying, don't worry, the end is not yet? So at this point, Craig Blazing is pretty much done with his argumentation trying to show the day of the Lord or wrath of God in Daniel. But he still tries to bolster this main premise, which is that the entire seven-year period, the entire 70th week of Daniel is the day of the Lord. He tries to come at it from a different book now. And this argument isn't necessarily unique to him. This argument, by the way, is probably the only thing I've really heard that even resembles a good argument. I don't think it's a good argument, but it's the only one that sort of resembles a normal hermeneutic that you would want to argue with. So it comes from Isaiah 13. So Isaiah 13, and we're going to read from Isaiah 13, 6 through 8. It says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs of agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. So the argument, of course, is that in Isaiah 13, which is unambiguously a day of the Lord context, the wrath of God is going on in this chapter, and it mentions that the agony that these people are having is like a woman in labor. The idea being that birth pangs are supposed to be understood as kind of a technical term to refer to the day of the Lord. And I should say that on its face, I don't disagree with the method of interpretation here. It's just that you need more information to determine if this kind of argumentation is true or else you would end up with some absurd doctrines. Like you could say, well, every time the word wine is mentioned in scripture, it, it means this because the, some context over here, uh, it meant that one time. So it, it's absurd to think this is a rule, but it is sometimes true. So like we've been talking about the celestial disturbances, the moon and is becoming his blood and the sun is that clock 
sackcloth, the stars falling from heaven and all that stuff, it repeats itself several times. And the reason I think that Joel 2, Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 are all speaking of that same celestial disturbance sign is not just because sackcloth and blood is mentioned. That's far too simplistic. It is also because the context is the same, not just the day of the Lord, but the eschatological day of the Lord. All that to say that let's look at the context, and I'm going to add to this another birth pangs uh, verse, which is in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, because it's often used uh, in other contexts to try to say that uh, that the birth pangs in Matthew 24 are the day of the Lord. It's Paul uh, saying, when they're saying peace and safety, then in a moment, destruction falls upon them like birth pangs on a woman who is with child. So first, I'd like to call your attention to every single one of these instances of the term birth pangs is using it in a different way. For example, in Isaiah 13, where it's talking about the day of the Lord, it says uh, they will be dismayed, pangs and agony will seize them and they will be in anguish like a woman in labor. So there the labor pains are meant to describe their anguish. In the same way that a woman who is in labor is in pain, these people will also be in pain. It's a pretty simplistic use of the concept of labor pains. Uh, much more technical in the New Testament verses where Jesus uses the, the, the term labor pains in the first part of the Olivet Discourse to say, and he says this explicitly, these things are not the end yet. These are just the beginnings of sorrows. And the birth pangs metaphor is there meant to illustrate that in the same way that the birth hasn't happened yet, but you start to see the signs that the birth is on its way. That's the the way that he uses birth pangs to illustrate it. He's not saying, uh, day of the Lord, they're going to be in pain like this woman in labor. And the, the day of the Lord that you are in now is like this labor pain. No, he, he's using labor pains in a, in a completely separate and different way. Paul, again, uses labor pains in a completely separate way. He's saying, while they are saying peace and safety, then in a moment, destruction falls upon them like birth pangs on a woman who's with child. So here is he saying that a woman can not feel a labor pain, then all of a sudden a labor pain can be on them. It's the suddenness of the labor pains there that he's referring to. The point here is that this doesn't fit the criteria for being able to say something is a technical term that should be applied everywhere it is seen or anything even close to it. It is just a normal kind of earthy kind of term that's often used in different contexts like uh, blood or grass or wine or whatever. There are just many different ways that it's used to refer to poetic things. Alan Holtberg has a four-part response to this. I'll read a few of them. Second, the birth pains metaphor in Matthew 24 is a sign to the Lord's followers that they are not in imminent danger. The Lord Jesus specifically commands his followers to, quote, make sure that you were not alarmed. He mentions the Greek word there. It's a Greek verb uh, used here, and it is, quote, connected with another Greek word, tumult. In the New Testament, it means to be troubled as in alarm or alarmed. If, as Blazing concludes, the day of the Lord begins at the same time as Daniel's final week, then it is inconceivable that believers should have no mental anguish about the about the panic the world is experiencing. There is not a single example in all of Scripture where God instructs his people not to be concerned, alarmed, about the wrath of God. If Matthew 24, 5-8 does indeed call people not to be concerned themselves with God's wrath, it's unparalleled elsewhere. We've come a long way in this podcast, and I've yet to describe how this Craig Blazing theory purports to fix the problem we've been talking about in the last episode and the preamble to this one. How does it solve the rest of Matthew 24, verses 36 through the end of 24, and then all of Matthew 25, all those uh, watch passages, no one knows the day or the hour. 
So, very quick backstory. John Hart, who we talked about last week, took everything after verse 36 in Matthew 24, which is no one knows the day or the hour, the uh, marrying and giving in marriage, the one taken and the other left, all that stuff, John Hart said was the rapture. And that was revolutionary because, of course, pre-tribulationalists have wanted to call that the rapture the whole time. But because they had to change verse 31 about the angels gathering the elect and all that stuff into Armageddon, that means that, of course, now everybody knows the date or the hour of Armageddon. It means that one taken and the other left has to somehow refer to taken to judgment. It refers to everybody knows the day or the hour and watch for what? Watch for these signs, but you can't have signs because of imminence. So they just got problem on top of problem now that they have changed it to verse 31. So Hart's Revolutionary Act was to say, you know what? Verse 36 and following is about the rapture. I just go ahead and admit it. His argumentation is that you get to divorce it from its context because there's a phrase in verse 36 that apparently gets to mean divorce everything from its context. And so... And, and John Hart actually refers to blazing in his paper and in his book because they have somewhat of a similar deal in that they're both modern guys trying to deal with the day or the hour problem. So Blazing does something very similar. He also focuses in on verse 36 and says there's a transition there, which of course there is. In English, it basically means now concerning. And what they're trying to say is that now concerning, in English is a good example, now concerning this can mean that I just now shifted a topic, or it can mean now concerning this, which can also mean now concerning another aspect of the thing I've just been talking about. It can mean both. It just entirely depends on the context. But they both focus in on that verse and say, now concerning can mean that he's talking about something completely different, which of course he can, but there's so many other elements that he's also clearly talking about the same context there, that this is the reason why other commentators throughout the ages have not uh, divorced the context. But basically, they both come up with the same concept that it's okay to divorce completely the context of after 36 uh, in order to make sense of the, the no one knows the day or the hour thing. The difference is that Craig Blazing does not think, uh, takes the more traditional approach that verse 36 and following is not talking about the rapture. What he says it is, is the day of the Lord complex. So if I can try to explain this, he thinks that when Jesus then begins talking about the no one knows the day or the hour, watch therefore and everything, he's now talking about everything that's going to come before the whole chapter started. In other words, in their mind, of course, the rapture happened before Matthew 24 began. He does, to make this point, do something interesting. He basically takes the exact pre-wrath view of parousia, which uh, is pretty interesting. The parousia is a Greek word that means coming. It's what the disciples ask, Lord, what is the sign of your parousia? And he takes the view that the parousia, the first event in the parousia is the the rapture. It, it, it's the first thing that Jesus does in his coming. But then the parousia is every event that happens uh, after that as well. The parousia is a complex of events that begins with the rapture. It's what pre-wrath has been saying for 30 years. Craig Blazing all of a sudden agrees with it because it now fits with this particular thing that he's trying to do. But the heart and soul of his theory, and forgive me if I'm getting any of this wrong, I honestly am confused really badly by it. I've literally put note cards out and tried to figure out what exactly he's trying to say. But he is basically saying that when Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour, he was saying that, look, I know that in this generation, uh, the temple will be destroyed. 
Jesus knew that. And remember his Danielic cycle? In his mind, that means that Jesus knew that the Danielic cycle, the entire Danielic cycle would play itself out in that generation. But what Jesus did not know, if that seven-year Danielic cycle that would happen that generation would be the same Danielic cycle that would result in his coming. In other words, what Jesus did not know is whether or not the the Danielic cycle that was coming in this generation would be the same one that he would return in, or if it would be another one in the future. And if it was another Danielic cycle in the future, then he would not know what the beginning of that seven-year period was, or when that beginning of that seven-year Danielic cycle would begin. The net result then is that Blazing gets to see the entire seven-year period as unknowable, signless, and the day of the Lord at the same time. If you buy into any of that, it would sort of solve the no one knows the day or the hour problem, but it doesn't solve things like the one taken and the other left. And and John Hart in his paper points that out, that Blazing's version of this doesn't work with the rest of it. He's still got all the one taken and, and, and the other left problems. And I would submit that what Blazing thinks he's getting out of this, an unknowable beginning of the day of the Lord. Remember, he's, he's already in his mind established that the entire seven-year period is the day of the Lord and the rapture is the first event in the day of the Lord. So the rapture in his mind now is... Uh, is both signless and uh, seven years long. But what he is forgetting is that Joel 2 verse, which in Malachi, which Malachi says that uh, Elijah will come before the day of the Lord. Uh, Joel says that this celestial disturbance sign will come before the day of the Lord. During an exchange in the Three Views book with Douglas Moo, Blazing was uh, confronted with this idea and It was kind of one of these things where he says something about the day of the Lord is really a complex, basically, we're going to to talk about this in the next podcast, about now what they're trying to do, having been confronted with these ideas that the day of the Lord has signs. And remember why that's a problem is because of imminence. They say that the rapture is signless. There are no prophetic events that must precede the rapture. But what everybody up until this point has believed is that the rapture initiated the day of the Lord. There was no gap between the, the, the rapture and then the wrath of God starting. That is Blazing's view. That is everybody's view that we've really talked about so far. I, and so if that's true, of course, then what are you going to do with Joel and Malachi that say that there are, in fact, events that are signs to wait for before the day of the Lord. In fact, that's what uh, Paul is expressly saying in 2 Thessalonians 2. My point here is that they have now had to make a change and say, okay, well, the day of the Lord is A, either two day of the Lord, so I'll talk about that next podcast, or there is a gap. So a gap theory has developed to try to answer these problems. Okay, so let's uh, look at Alan Holtberg's response to this particular claim of Blazing's, and then we're going to move on to 2 Thessalonians 2, because I think there's something really interesting to see there. Holtberg says, quote, Blazing also claims that when Jesus speaks of his unknown coming in Matthew 24, 36 through 25, 30, he is speaking of the entire day of the Lord complex of Matthew 24, 4 through 31. This claim allows Blazing to distinguish the glorious appearing in 24, 29 through 31, which is preceded by signs from the coming mentioned in 24, 36 through 25 and 30, namely the entire complex events in 24, 4 through 31, which presumably is not. In response, first, I noted that in my opening remarks, this point is incompatible with Blazing's earlier argument about the Olivet Discourse. 
Though earlier, Blazing maintained that Jesus expects the disciples to experience the phenomenon of 24, 4-28, even if they prove to belong to the eschatological day of the Lord, his exegesis of 24, 36-25 and 30 suggests that the disciples should not expect to see any of those things should they so prove. It is not clear to me how he can maintain both positions. Uh, in Craig Blazing's argument, he's saying that that generation, the disciples, will see the destruction of the temple. But his whole argument about the unknown situation means that they're supposed to be raptured before that whole thing even begins. He continues, there's no good reason to distinguish the parousia that encompasses that day, verses 37 and 39, from the explicit reference to the parousia in 24, 30 through 31, especially given the flow of the discussion of Jesus's parousia from verses 3 to 35. The parousia of 21, 30 through 31 is the parousia of 24, 36 through 39. It is only a supposed necessary dichotomy between signs and unknowability that drives Blazing to deny this and thus to try to establish that all of 24, 4 through 31 is the day of the Lord slash parousia to which verse 36 refers. But I have shown above that this latter attempt falls short, and I've argued earlier that the former supposition is false. So while I agree on the grounds with blazing that the day of the Lord slash parousia is a complex of events that begins with the rapture and concludes with the glorious appearing of Christ, this point is not established in the Olivet Discourse. Okay, so if you're still with me, we're going to move on to 2 Thessalonians 2 and end with this because I do think it is pretty interesting. So I think that Craig Blazing tried to do too much. He tried to come up with all the solves that pre-tribulationalism need. And of course, 2 Thessalonians 2 is a really big one. Namely, that 2 Thessalonians 2 says that there are two events that must precede the rapture, the apostasy and the falling or the falling away, the apostasy and the man of sin being revealed. These two events need to occur first. That's the problem because, of course, in pre-tribulationalism, you can't have anything occur first before the rapture. The rapture is signless, unknowable. It can happen at any moment. So to have, and let alone to have the Antichrist there first, that is absolutely unacceptable. So there have been, as we talked about in the podcast, lots of different ways that people have come up with to get around this. But this is Blazing's tact. He starts off saying, well, now about the coming of the Lord and our gathering together to him, there's the coming and the gathering is reasonably the rapture. He says, I don't want you to be dis disturbed by any report that the day of the Lord has come because unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, they were waiting for the conclusion of the sentence. He says, do you, do you remember when I was talking to you about that man of lawlessness? Do you remember who he is? Let me tell you about him. And Paul never finishes the sentence. That's not the only time in the writings of Paul where that happens. But see, when you have an English translation or any of the modern language translations, you can't have an incomplete sentence. <laughs> you got to complete the sentence. So in your Bibles, you'll have something like this. Uh, don't want to be disturbed by a report that the day of the Lord has come. For that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And do you remember I was telling you about the man of lawlessness and so on? But that phrase, uh, that day will not come, is filled in by the translator. It's not in your Greek text. 
And in some translations, like the New American Standard, it'll appear in italics to show you that that's been added. So the question is, well, what did he intend to say? And a lot of people like that translation for the day will not come, thinking that what he's saying is that the day of the Lord doesn't come until these events come first, and then you have the day of the Lord. But it's just as possible that Paul is saying the day of the Lord is not here because there's this event, this event, this event, which are all elements of that day. And you're not in the day because you're not seeing the elements of the day, which are following a sequential pattern. So we talked about this a little bit in the Second Thessalonians podcast. This is sometimes called the conditional argument or the during argument. And just about every pre-trib commentary will say something like this. They don't say what Craig Blazing said about the, the missing sentence thing, but they, they won't have any argument whatsoever. They just tell the people that what this really means is that Paul wasn't saying, oh, these events won't come first. What he was saying was, hey, look, you think you're in the day of the Lord? Don't worry about it. You're not in the day of the Lord. You don't see the Antichrist around anywhere, do you? Well, there you go. You're not in the day of the Lord because you don't see, uh, you're not, you don't see the Antichrist during the day of the Lord. They basically tell people not to worry about that pesky word first, but I have yet to see, and I've read a lot of commentaries on Second Thessalonians at this point, I've yet to see anybody give an argumentation of why first should be as disregarded as it is in pre-trib commentaries. So naturally, I got kind of excited when I saw that he was discussing this topic. He was having technical language around this because it seemed like I was going to get an explanation for why pre-tribbers feel justified in disregarding this concept of these things coming first, before the day of the Lord, before the rapture. But instead, I get this discussion, and I, by the way, have seen him give this basically exact same discussion at, at Dallas Theological Seminary, and now here at Southeastern Seminary, he writes basically the same thing in his book. So he's had at least three chances in my mind to clarify the situation. Um, but what he does is say that there is a missing sentence, an ellipsis, and yes, ellipses are common in the New Testament, apparently, these incomplete sentences that are filled in by the translators and often have italics there to let the reader know that these were not in the original text. But what he does not do, and what he obviously should have done here, this is a quick edit because I realized I forgot to mention the most important part of this was that the reason the translators choose to translate this passage the way that they do, and the reason there's almost no deviation among English translations about how they translate this, which is not what you would expect if it was as open-ended of options as Craig Blazing would have you believe, but the reason that they're all so consistent is because of the Greek word protos or proton, which means first. And you can look at a Greek interlinear Bible, and it basically means what it means in English. And it certainly means that these events come first, not during. What they would have to argue is that first doesn't mean first, or first means during, or whatever. This is uh, a little bit on the dishonest side, in my opinion, from Blazing, because he's not a stupid man, um, and he knows this is true. Uh, but I do, I do feel like this is an important point. In fact, uh, Alan Kirshner, who we've mentioned uh, earlier, he has a debate challenge uh, out there for anybody that wants to debate just this specific to topic in 2 Thessalonians 2, that is the use of the word protos or proton in uh, this passage. You know, I, when I first saw this, I was like, oh my gosh, I'd never heard this argument before and I didn't know any better. And I thought, man, 
I've never heard that argument before, and I had a reason to look it up. These people that he gave the lecture to had zero reason to look it up. In their minds, it has just been solved, and they've been taught that, oh, it was a translator error with 2 Thessalonians 2. They're telling people that right now today when somebody comes up to 2 Thessalonians 2, and you bet those people in that seminary room are blinding whoever uh, is asking them uh, about that with science. It's like, it's Greek. You don't know. I mean, it's a Greek thing. It's a, you know, there was an ellipsis in the sentence, Paul. They're, they're spreading that around now because of this error. Just really quickly, Blazing also in 2 Thessalonians 2 has some uh, some humdingers. He says that you can't know what apostasy is. He, he, does, he takes the high road on apostasy. He doesn't say it's a physical departure or spiritual departure, uh, he, anything. He basically says you can't know what apostasy is because it was something that Paul referred to in a lost letter of 2 Thessalonians. So it is unknowable what it is. And I thought that was a novel approach. Anyway, I'm going to wrap this up. I'm losing my voice here, but I would say that it was a slog to get through this. This was a podcast I've been dreading for a long time. There's a lot of information here. It's not particularly exciting, but I needed to go through it uh, for my own purposes. I need to refer back to this when I'm thinking about things in, uh, in, in the future. So thanks for sticking with me to this point. If you have already, I really appreciate it. Uh, check out all the links, Bible Prophecy Talk, prewrathmovie.com. If you want to donate to that project, we could use your help. And go see Alan's new book on Audible, Antichrist Before the Day of the Lord. See you next time.